Good afternoon, everybody. Let's get uh, get started here. Some people will probably be lingering in as we had uh, many more RSVPs than are here at the moment. I'm Dan Eikenson. Welcome to Cato. I am uh, the Associate Director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato. And today I, I have the privilege of, of introducing my colleague of nine years, Dan Griswold. And it's a privilege not only because uh, he's my boss who made me do this. It has nothing to do with it. Uh, Dan has actually written a, a wonderfully accessible book uh, that, that methodically refutes uh, persistent myths that we hear uh, about the alleged ill effects of trade uh, and explains, I think, in elegant but, 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 in, but in simple terms why trade and globalization should be embraced. So this afternoon, Dan will uh, describe the theme and some of the highlights, uh, some of the major highlights about this book, Mad About Trade, why Main Street America Should Embrace Globalization. It was published by Cato this year, uh, and copies are available for sale outside. And I think Dan would be perfectly willing to sign copies for you if you were inclined to purchase them. Uh, after, after Dan speaks, we have Stephen Perlstein, who you all know as a prominent business columnist at the, at the Washington Post. He's going to offer his thoughts about Dan's book. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, Stephen's bio includes this statement that he offers edgy and unpredictable opinions. So we've really rolled the dice by inviting Stephen here today. <laughs> so let, let me just take a couple minutes to, to set the table, and then I'm going to turn it over to Dan and, and Steve. Some books are written by policy wonks for policy wonks, and, and I think those are important books in, in many cases. Uh, they help to advance our understanding of issues. Uh, but on the subject of international trade, I think it's fair to say uh, that the trade experts are already convinced. Uh, there is really overwhelming acceptance among economists that, that trade is good, that free trade policies are advisable, uh, and that protectionism is costly and short-sighted. The arguments have been with us for centuries. Uh, the scholarship, in my view, is largely complete. Uh, can you really improve upon Smith and Ricardo and Hume and Bastiat to explain why free exchange is both morally and economically superior to the alternatives. Um, sure, you can adapt their arguments to a globalized world, which is kind of what we do here at Cato, but I think the results ultimately are the same, and that is that voluntary economic exchange is inherently fair. Uh, government intervention in that process on behalf of some citizens at the expense of others is inherently unfair, uh, and that uh, is the compelling moral justification for a world without trade barriers. Free trade really respects the sanctity of individuals to decide how and with whom to transact. And protectionism, on the other hand, coerces individuals to make particular decisions to the benefit of chosen parties. And then beyond the moral case, free markets are essential to our prosperity. Now, freer trade widens the circle of people with whom we transact and brings benefits to consumers in the form of lower prices and greater variety, better quality, and it allows companies to reap the benefits of innovation, specialization, and economies of scale, and other things that, that larger markets afford. So I think the scholarship is there. Uh, what we're sorely missing, however, uh, trade advocacy is missing, uh, is effective salesmanship. Uh, we need to be less wonky, uh, less technical, and perhaps uh, more personable and we have to be better storytellers. I think trade advocates must win the hearts as well as the minds of the American public if we expect to see good, smart trade policy adopted permanently and, and, and once and for all. So to my mind, this book really should play a significant role 
uh, in that effort to win hearts uh, as well as minds. The book was written by a policy wonk who was first and foremost a middle-class Main Streeter from Minnesota. Uh, and it was written primarily for an audience of middle-class Main Street Americans who are yearning for an alternative uh, to Lou Dobbs and union rhetoric and political charlatans uh, to inform their understanding of trade and globalization. So Dan, while he is fluent in, in policy wonkies, which is the official language uh, inside the Beltway, uh, as this book demonstrates, Dan is really bilingual. His maiden tongue is Main Streetese, which he speaks regularly inside and outside the Beltway. So for those of you who don't know Dan, or, or those of you who do know him and have read his work uh, or heard him speak, you probably know that he's not a preachy type. Dan's skill is his ability to persuade without having to raise his voice, uh, without littering his pages with exclamation points. So uh, free trade advocacy has assumed a defensive posture uh, with trade myths running rampant and adversely affecting, adversely affecting public opinion. But free trade advocacy, in my view, must take the offensive and force protectionists to address the abundance of evidence that argues against their policy prescriptions. Dan's book, in my opinion, represents the strongest effort to date to regain the moral high ground for free trade. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce uh, my esteemed colleague, Dan Griswold. Uh, Dan is the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato uh, and author of this new book. And since joining Cato in, in 1997, Dan has authored numerous studies on globalization, trade, and immigration. He's written articles for major newspapers, uh, appeared on CN, uh, CNBC, C-SPAN, CNN, PBS, all of them, Fox News, etc. He's testified before the House uh, and the Senate, uh, various committees. Uh, earlier in his career, Mr. Griswold, Dan, uh, was editorial page editor of a daily newspaper, the Colorado Springs Gazette, and he was a congressional press secretary. Uh, earlier in his life. He holds a bachelor's degree in journalism from the University of Wisconsin at Madison uh, and a diploma in economics and a master's degree in the politics of the world economy from the London School of Economics. Let's welcome Dan Griswold. Well, thank you very much, Dan, and thank you, everybody, for coming out today. Let me just, uh, just got a few props here. Well, thank, thank you very much, Dan, for that generous introduction. And Main Street is not a cliche for me. I didn't grow up in a small town in central Minnesota uh, called Sauk Center, a one-stoplight town with 4,000 people. My high school buddies and I had to drive 25 miles if we wanted a Big Mac uh, when I was in high school. I've spent most of my adult life outside of Washington, in the Midwest, uh, in Colorado, what some people in Washington refer to as flyover country, uh, to me, is home. This book was not written for other trade experts. It was written for Americans out there in small towns and farmhouses, suburbs and cities, wondering where we're headed in this uh, crazy, more open world of ours. Americans are bombarded every day uh, from populists on the left and the right, on cable TV, talk radio, on the Internet, pounding away that trade and globalization are bad for the economy, they're destroying our jobs, depressing wages, uh, deindustrializing America. My goal in writing this book was to challenge the populace on their own turf. This is a, a scholarly book with attitude. 
Uh, it has facts and figures and, and charts in it, but it also tries to close the deal by appealing to our most basic values as Americans. Fairness, compassion, competition, freedom, progress, peace, the rule of law. Mad About Trade is organized in concentric circles. I start in the home, Americans as consumers, then out to the workplace, jobs, wages, onto the factory floor, and then beyond there to the long-term performance of the U.S. economy, the trade deficit, foreign investment, and then I look at the broader world. What kind of world is globalization making not only for us today but for our children? And I find it's a world with less poverty, uh, more democracy, and more peace. Now, other books have been written about people coming out of the closet. I begin Mad About Trade by going into my closet. Uh, I spent part of a day uh, doing a survey of everything hanging in, in my closet. And I have to say there were no skeletons uh, hanging there. But uh, there was a scandal of sorts, at least in some people's eyes, and that is how few items were made in the USA. Uh, out of 120 clothing items, uh, suit coats, trousers, T-shirts, dress shirts, all that stuff, uh, out of 120, exactly 10 were made in the USA, and nine of those were neckties. The other items were made in China, Mexico, Guatemala, India, South Korea, 16 other, other countries. Uh, one knit shirt had Lou Dobbs' worst nightmare on the label, Echo and China. <laughs> you know, I went through the rest of the house, chock full of stuff made abroad, especially from China, an electric tea kettle, bread machine, folding chairs, two laptop computers, three basketballs. I was, as I was getting dressed this morning, my, my suit is made in, in India. My shoes are made in India. My shirt in Vietnam. Uh, my belt in China. My tie in China. Uh, some miscellaneous items in uh, places like Costa Rica and Honduras. I think that's pretty cool. In fact, uh, without imports, I'd be quite embarrassed right now. <laughs> now, uh, before anybody questions my patriotism, I challenge my readers to do their own survey, and they'll find a very similar uh, uh, results. In fact, we as Americans have voted with our dollars for a more global economy. In the 1960s, if you added up all our exports and compared it to GDP, it was about 6%. Same for imports. We had balanced trade back then. <clears throat> Today, our exports compared to GDP have almost tripled to 17%. Our imports have almost quadrupled uh, uh, to 22% of GDP comparison. Not since colonial times have Americans earned or spent a higher share of our income in the global economy than we do today. And we're more globalized for three essentially very good reasons. Uh, one, the world's been catching up to us, not because we've been moving back, but because uh, Europe and Japan rebuilt themselves after World War II. Emerging economies like China and India and others have been catching up. There are more people out there to do business with. Uh, two, trade barriers have been coming down since World War II, much of it unilaterally, but also through the GATT and various uh, treaties. And three, globalization has been turbocharged by technology. 
the jet engine, containerization, telecommunications, the internet. These have probably done more to juice globalization than all the trade treaties signed in the last 40 years. <clears throat> you know, I point out in the book that thanks to Federal Express and, and other companies, more than half the value of what Americans export to the rest of the world now doesn't leave on ships, it leaves on airplanes. Opponents of globalization should really be as mad about technology as they are about trade agreements. Well, the biggest winners from free trade are consumers. They are the forgotten special interest in the Washington trade debate. You never, it's always talk about exports and producers and our producers versus their producers. Uh, this book starts rightfully talking about American consumers. And we shouldn't apologize for being consumers. Consumption is not a dirty word. <laughs> Without consumption, we would all be starving, naked, homeless, and quickly dead. It's the stuff of life. <clears throat> you know, the paychecks and the profits we earn do us no good if we can't translate them into tangible goods that benefit us every day. A place to live, a car, clothes, food, that big screen TV that I tell my wife we need to get, uh, college tuition. Politicians and pundits in this town have nothing but contempt for us as consumers. This is a nonpartisan book. I, I pick on Democrats and Republicans alike. I criticize things said by Warren Buffett and Ron Paul and Ralph Nader. But let me just pick on our president for a moment. In a 2007 presidential primary debate in Chicago, Keith Olbermann asked then-Senator Obama a very reasonable question. He said, why should a struggling American family be forced to pay more for a T-shirt made in America when they can get it more cheaply imported? Here's what our future president said, and this is a, was a stadium full of union members. People don't want a cheaper T-shirt if they're losing a job in the process. They would rather have the job and pay a little bit more for a T-shirt. Lou Dobbs said the same, the same thing in one of his books. I don't think helping consumers save a few cents on trinkets and T-shirts is worth the loss of American jobs. Well, somebody should remind them, and I do, <clears throat> that almost all Americans wear T-shirts. On any given day, it's probably about half of America. And almost no Americans make T-shirts anymore. In fact, less than one-third of 1% 1 of American workers make T-shirts or clothing or textiles of any kind, while every American family, rich and poor alike, must buy shirts to clothe themselves. A well-paid television personality in New York or politician here in Washington doesn't need to care what a T-shirt costs. But millions of American families do care, especially those living on low and middle incomes. Free trade is a working family's best friend. We benefit every day from lower prices, more consumer choice, better quality. I show in the book that consumer prices for goods that are readily tradable on global markets have risen over the last eight years or so at a rate lower than inflation, or in many cases have actually gone down. Think of consumer electronics, toys, clothing, shoes, even new automobiles. While prices have increased above inflation, sometimes much above inflation, for those goods and services that are not readily tradable on global markets, 
Think of, oh, health care, uh, college tuition, cable TV, movie tickets, trash collection. Trade has delivered lower prices uh, for American families, and of course that translates directly into higher real wages. Trade also means more variety. More choice means more consumer satisfaction per dollar spent. I cite a study in here from the University of Chicago that shows that Americans are about $400 billion better off each year because of increased variety that trade has brought. That's $5,000 for a family of four. And imports from China have played a major role in delivering those lower prices, especially for lower-income American families. They're the ones shopping at the big-box retailers looking for those lower-end consumer goods, and especially around Christmas time. You know, imports from China bump up about 30% this time of year because the stores are stocking up uh, for Christmas. If, if the Grinch who stole Christmas was in the U.S. Senate, uh, he would be co-sponsoring legislation to get tough on China and raise tariffs. Well, this exposes the dirty secret of the U.S. harmonized tariff schedule. Besides its numbing complexity that rivals the IRS uh, tax code, it is terribly biased against the poor. Our highest remaining trade barriers in the United States are imposed on products that are made and grown by poor people abroad and disproportionately consumed by poor people here at home. We're talking the, the staples of a family budget, food, clothing, shoes. In fact, the, the $25 billion that the federal government collects each year from duties is by far the most regressive tax that the federal government uh, imposes. Opponents of trade liberalization who are fighting against any reductions in U.S. tariffs are unwittingly keeping those regressive taxes in place, picking the pockets of Americans who can least afford it. The bargains that free trade delivers to Americans through big box retailers have done more to help struggling American families in these difficult economic times than any lumbering stimulus program that's moved through Congress. Well, let me spend my remaining time getting to, uh, in some ways, the heart of the book, at least the heart of anxieties that Americans have about trade, and that is anxieties about jobs, living standards, and our manufacturing base. You know, what if the critics are right? What good are lower prices if we don't have jobs? Well, a central point of the book is that, and this uh, really goes to advocates and critics of trade, uh, that trade isn't about more jobs or fewer jobs. It's about better jobs. There's no evidence that openness to trade causes higher or lower unemployment. That's driven by broader factors in the economy, monetary policy, labor market flexibility, the business cycle. Trade allows Americans to do more of what we do best, to specialize in our strengths. It also means we're going to import, we're going to produce less and import more shoes and T-shirts and other lower-end items. People do lose jobs to trade. There's no doubt about it. The best estimates are three to 500,000 people lose their jobs to trade uh, every year. But that's in the context of a dynamic economy with huge market churn. There are maybe 15 million people losing their jobs each year. Of course, we, in a normal year, are creating 16 or, mil or 17 million jobs, so we have net job growth. But that means trade accounts for about 3% of job displacement. 
You know, think of for every person standing in the unemployment line who was dis displaced by imports or outsourcing, there are 30 people directly in front of them who were displaced by other uh, forces in the economy. And we can feel sympathy for every person in that line. But we shouldn't demonize trade as somehow responsible as a major source of job loss. I say, what about the other 30 workers? Uh, technology is a major agent of job displacement in the United States, but also changing consumer tastes, domestic competition, the business cycle. You know, think of all the people who've lost jobs in bookstores because of Amazon.com or record stores because of iTunes. A Kodak company in Rochester, New York, has uh, laid off 30,000 workers in the last five years. The big job killer is digital cameras. Film sales have plunged 30%. Now, how many people in the Hayek Auditorium, how many of you own digital cameras? All right. What would you think of the idea of imposing a 50% tax on digital cameras? Or let's just ban them to save those good middle class, probably unionized jobs at Kodak. Well, I think we can all see that that would be economic nonsense. And yet, the basic economic argument for tariffs is exactly the same. Uh, I'm a refugee from the daily newspaper business. Steve, Pulitzer Prize winner, he's holding on to his job. But uh, I, 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 I wasn't in that class of journalist, uh, and so I got out of the business in the 1990s. But newspapers have been hemorrhaging readers, ad lineage, and jobs. Uh, since 2001, a quarter of newspaper jobs have disappeared in this country. It's not because of trade. It's because of technology, Craigslist and all the young people getting their news uh, for free off the Internet. I'm not bitter. I'm not mad. I just got some mid-career job retraining and, uh, and found something else to do. Contrary to the common tale, expanding levels of trade in recent decades have been accompanied by higher standards of living uh, in the United States. You hear a lot about stagnant real wages. There are a couple of problems with that. Uh, we tend to mismeasure inflation. But also, that doesn't include benefits. And benefits are how we pay for health care and retirement, increasingly. Uh, if you put wages and benefits together and uh, factor in inflation, you get something what the government calls real compensation per hour. And that is actually up 20% since the early 1990s. Uh, median, real median household income is up $4,000 since the early 1990s, uh, before we had NAFTA and, and the WTO. The common story is that trade has caused the loss of well-paying, mostly unionized manufacturing jobs, and they've been replaced, this according to the myth, by low-paying service jobs, flipping hamburgers, cashiering at a Walmart. This is one of the big lies of the trade debate. Yes, uh, since the beginning of the 1990s, the U.S. labor market has shed more than 3 million manufacturing jobs. But over that same period, going back to 1991 through 2008, the U.S. economy created a net gain of 18 million service sector jobs in sectors where the average pay is higher than in manufacturing. In fact, over the last two, and that, that's in, we know the sectors, education and health services, professional and business services, before the recession anyway, construction and financial services. 
In fact, two-thirds of the net new jobs that have been created over the last two decades are in service sectors where the average pay is higher than in manufacturing. The American middle class today earns its keep in the service sector. Go and knock on middle class doors of any of those towns and cities across America and ask people where they work, and you'll find they work in the service sector overwhelmingly. Teachers, managers, carpenters, engineers, computer specialists, truck drivers, firefighters and police officers, insurance and real estate agents, uh, registered nurses and other healthcare professionals, small business owners, independent small business owners. Those are the occupations that now form the backbone of the American middle class. Those are the jobs our kids aspire to fill, or at least they should expect to fill. Uh, we all know they aspire to be professional athletes and rock stars and trade policy analysts, but, but, but those are service sector jobs too. Which brings me to another big myth that uh, I devote a whole chapter to in Mad About Trade, and that is uh, the deindustrialization myth. <clears throat> the current recession has been brutal on U.S. manufacturing. No, no question about it. Virtually every recession is. Trade's not the fault. at fault. Imports of manufacturing goods have all, are also down sharply, along with output. But as recently as 2007, <clears throat> American factories were producing more output, more sales, more profit, and a higher return on investment than in uh, years and decades past. Most sectors of U.S. manufacturing have found a profitable place serving global markets. Uh, I was on uh, talk radio is one of the things we do in our, in our business, and I was on a radio show based in Delaware a few months ago, and one of the callers says, nobody's manufacturing anything. Well, consider this. Go back to 2007, the most recent data. In that year, American workers on American soil produced 5,000 jet aircraft, 15,000 jet aircraft engines, 10 million motor vehicles, 14 million air conditioners, 25 million computers, 44 million heavy appliances, refrigerators, ranges, dishwashers, washing machines, 1.6 billion yards of carpet had made in the USA stamped on them. 28 million short tons of chlorine gas, sodium hydroxide and other chemicals. We forget, those are manufactured products too. One and a half billion gallons of paint made in the USA. Billions of semiconductors, pills, and books made in the USA. That's a lot of stuff that Americans have, have made. And we can make all that with three million fewer workers because American workers are so much more productive than they've been in the past. And that is the essence of competitiveness. Now, as you can tell, I like to use numbers. Um, the other side uses a lot of numbers, many of them wrong, as I point out in the book. Uh, but, but their weapon of choice is the anecdote. They'll say, aha, tell that to the workers in X town. Well, there was a book a few years ago, very critical of trade, called The Selling of Free Trade by, uh, by John MacArthur. He spends the first 50 pages of the book telling the story of one factory in Queens, New York, Long Island City, where they make staplers like, uh, like this one. That factory closed down in the summer of 1998, 400 jobs uh, eliminated. They moved to Nogales, Mexico. Aha, the giant sucking sound for everyone to see. Well, 
I started investigating that, that anecdote a little bit and, and found a couple of interesting things. One, 1998 was a pretty good year for U.S. manufacturing. That was when the 1990s boom was going full steam. Manufacturing output that year was actually up 7% from the previous year. U.S. factories, in the first five years after NAFTA, U.S. factories added half a million net manufacturing jobs. This stapler factory in Long Island City, New York, chronicled at great length, was very much an exception, something of a, of a sideshow. On a speaking trip to New York a couple of years ago, I went out where the, fact, where the staplers used to be made, got on the number seven subway out to Long Island City, and I found a thriving area of New York, um, lots of shops and delis, a YMCA, a community college. I looked at the two buildings where they made the staplers. Uh, one of them had become a... Um, a shipping and receiving facility with a tool and die service and a tennis club in it. The other one had become a storage facility for the Museum of Modern Art, and the community uh, was doing fine. I think the real lesson of the Swing Line Stapler Factory is not that free trade inevitably closes factories. It's that manufacturing low-tech staplers, a 15-minute subway ride from Manhattan, probably wasn't something that was going to last. If it didn't, lose, didn't go to Mexico, it was probably going to go to oh, a right-to-work state like South Carolina, the same way the textile mills uh, did 100 years ago and a lot of auto production has uh, just in our lifetimes. Well, of course, today the worry is about trade with China. Isn't it funny? 20 years ago it was Japan, 10 years ago Mexico, uh, five years ago India, and now, now it's China. Um, <clears throat> I spend some time in the book talking about the re reality of manufacturing with China, and that is they're not a direct competitor for a lot of sectors. What China is is the final link in a very complex global supply chain. And what better way to illustrate that than, than an iPod? You know, my, uh, my two teenage sons got iPods a couple of Christmases ago and, and leave it to dad to uh, turn it over to see where it was made. Well, of course, it's made in China, right? comes over here and it adds to our, not only our bilateral deficit, but our deficit in, uh, what's, what's the term of art, uh, uh, <clears throat> high technology products, okay? Well, this is technically made in China, but it isn't really. Uh, and leave it to Apple to get this right. If you look on the back, it says, designed by Apple in California, assembled in China. Uh, there was a team of economists at the University of California, Irvine, that looked where the value added came from a $300 iPod, an earlier generation uh, from this one. And they found that uh, it, of that $300, although it was assembled in China, an American company supplied the processing chips, a Korean company the memory chip, a couple of Japanese companies the hard drive and the display screen. According to the authors, the value added to the product through assembly in China is probably a few dollars at most. The biggest winner, the single biggest component in an iPod made in China, it's profit to Apple, $80. And they deserve every dollar of it for their design, their engineering, the brand name that goes into it. The next biggest payoff is on the other end of the supply chain, and that's in the distribution and the retail. Again, most of it going to Americans. The higher-end components supplied outside of China. Uh, the Chinese are literally getting the crumbs uh, at the bottom of the table. Would we be better off assembling more staplers in the United States? 
uh, and not having a large share of the supply chain and the value added in an iPod? Uh, I would say no. We might have more manufacturing jobs, but we would be poorer. The real story is that in manufacturing, like general living standards, Americans have been moving up uh, the ladder, moving up the value chain. In manufacturing, we're producing and selling more stuff as our nation becomes more integrated in the global economy. Well, let me just conclude by saying free trade promises real benefits to Main Street Americans. But the transition isn't always painless. Uh, my favorite form of exercise is to go running in the morning. Sometimes I'll come back and my wife will say, did you have a good run? And I don't always feel that way right at the moment. Uh, and I think free trade is a lot like exercise and fresh air. It can be uncomfortable as we transition to the new routine. We sweat. We breathe hard. Our muscles ache. But pretty soon our aerobic capacity expands. We can run faster and further. We can lift more weight. We can shake off the ups and downs of life. In contrast, protectionism is a lot like lounging on the couch, eating Cheetos, and watching reruns in a stale room with the windows shuttered. Uh, it, it can be comforting uh, in the short term, but it quickly leads to flabbiness, fatigue, and decline. After writing this book, I'm more convinced than ever that embracing free trade and globalization, globalization is the right policy for Main Street America. And in the latter part of the book, and I'll be happy to expand on this, I give some suggestions for our policymakers. A lot of people today are mad about trade. Mad isn't angry. But the message of my book is that we should be mad in a different way. Mad is in crazy in love with the possibilities that globalization is unfolding before our eyes every day. We should have the same positive feelings towards free trade and globalization as we do towards digital cameras and iPods and online shopping and email and a well-fed child going off to school and peace on earth. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Uh, now we're going to have some uh, some commentary, some feedback, perhaps some some pushback from uh, uh, Stephen Perlstein, who is uh, a business and writer of uh, for biz uh, about the business and, and the economy at the Washington Post. He's also uh, an associate editor uh, of the Washington Post. Uh, since 2003, Mr. Perlstein has been offering, as I quoted earlier, edgy and unpredictable opinions three times a week on local, national, and international topics. Uh, in 2008, Mr. P Mr. Perlstein won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary uh, for his insightful columns about our problems in the financial markets. Uh, Steve's uh, journalism career includes editing roles at The Post and Inc. magazine. Uh, he was founding publisher and editor of The Boston Observer, uh, a monthly journal of liberal opinion. Uh, he got his start in journalism uh, reporting for two New Hampshire newspapers, The Concord Monitor and The Foster's Daily Democrat. Uh, Stephen has also worked as a television news reporter and a congressional staffer in both the Senate and the House. Uh, Stephen Perlstein graduated from Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut in 1973. Please help me welcome Stephen Perlstein. Good afternoon. Thank you for inviting me. 
Thank you for that introduction, Dan. Um, Uh, well, first I want to congratulate Dan on an, um, an excellent book. It says, Clear and Factual an Explanation of the Advantages uh, of Free Flow of Goods and Services and Capital, as I've read. Um, it's really strong in reminding us that the purpose of trade is to import, not to export. It's uh, very good at... at uh, puncturing the myth that we can't have a, a strong economy unless everybody has got a high-wage union manufacturing job. Um, it's right about, um, he's right about what he said about um, misuse of data having to do with, that some people use to convince us that we're all getting poorer and that the middle class is disappearing. Uh, it's right to focus us on the fact that we have not actually lost jobs. Um, and it's certainly important in the way that it points out that our manufacturing output um, and productivity have actually increased, even as manufacturing employment has de decreased. I, could, I might add manufacturing wages as well have increased. Uh, but you didn't ask me to come here to talk about what was right about the book, so <laughs> now now we'll go on to what's wrong. <laughs> um, some of the problems, I think, with the book um, that will unfortunately undercut the credibility of the of most of the things that it says, which are right, is that it totally neglects the problem of markets that are closed to U.S. products because of, of other people's trade restraints. Trade works best when it works both ways. Systems equilibrate best when they do. Um, and uh, he totally ignores that. Um, there's economic consequences to that. By not having mutually open market, it reduces um, the benefits to trade to everybody, including us. But perhaps more importantly, ignores the political context of that, which is that one reason that you have trade restraints on other people is to get them to take their trade restraints uh, of your goods off. And that's a legitimate political purpose for having them. That's often why um, the better people in the trade debate want to keep certain trade restraints. Um, not the bad people, not the Lou Dobbs, but that's why um, trade negotiators say, well, look, I'm not going to get rid of that unless you get rid of that. Um, and that's a legitimate uh, negotiating tool. Um, I think Dan uh, makes the classic economist mistake um, of dismissing the effect of trade on wages. Uh, in fact, he ignores it mostly, uh, and then to the degree he talks about it, he dismisses it. Um, there is no doubt that trade, as Mr. Samuelson reminds us and as the data still confirms, that trade does have an effect and has had an effect on the wages of blue-collar workers, particularly blue-collar males. Those have gone down. They've gone down mostly, in fact, in the non-manufacturing sector. But to the degree that wages in the economy are keyed off the traded sector, um, 
the effect of trade has been noticeable. Now, these effects are not generally captured by economists who do regression analyses. Um, and we can talk about that if you want, but they generally take the, um, the effect, they take the number of jobs lost, or what appear to be jobs lost, or the amount of trade, and they regress that against the changes in wages. The problem with that is that it's not simply trade that affects wages. It's the threat of trade that affects wages. If the first, if the first uh, shoe company that goes moves its production, that closes and moves production um, overseas, leaves, you know, you lose 100 jobs. You have a certain amount of new imports that come in to replace that. Okay. And the effect on wages is minimal. And then the second, still minimal. Third, still minimal. By the time you get about to 8, 9, 10, 11 factories, the workers get the idea. Um, and their leverage significantly changes. And so they accept lower wages because they know the alternative to accepting lower wages is losing their jobs, and some of them don't want to do that or don't think they'll get a better one. Whether they're right or wrong about that is neither here nor there. They do accept lower wages. And because they accept lower wages, there is not an increase in trade because they're still making the shoes. And so even while you don't have an increase in trade after the 11th or the 12th or the um, move of a factory, and so there is nothing against which to regress, the effect uh, happens. And it's not so much a, a, a simple line that you can regress. It's, it's a tipping point. At the tipping point, workers lose leverage. They know they've lost the game, and they either go somewhere else or they accept. And this is not a dynamic that economists economists who've been trained and are good at math are very good at. Um, they don't understand it, and it's difficult to model. So if it's difficult to model, then it doesn't exist in the world of economics. Um, he also ignores totally the effect of trade on income distribution, um, which is also real. Trade, by its nature, here and everywhere else, strengthens returns to capital. It strengthens returns to education, both of which are distributed unequally in society. So the degree to which it increases those returns and reduces others, it contributes to inequality. But it also creates and or it increases the power of winner-take-all markets to the degree that instead of people competing instead of in regional markets, they compete in national markets, but to the degree they, keep, uh, they are able to compete in global markets rather than national markets. And to the degree that those markets tend to be winner-take-all or winners-take-most, and there are a lot of markets like that, then the winners win even bigger and the losers lose even more. So. Think about this in terms of an opera singer, which has nothing, by the way, this will have nothing to do with trade initially. If, back in the 19th century, if you were an opera singer and you were, you were, if you liked opera, if you were an opera singer, you could go around 
and basically you could travel a region. And, you know, if you did five concerts a week and 100 people could go to each concert, well, you can figure out you could sell that many tickets. And because you were limited by, by, the, by the number of people you could sing to, your income was limited. And th so there were opera singers all over the United States, all over the world, lots of different regions. And, you know, if you were really good in your region, you could earn whatever. You could sell out the house every night, but you were limited by the number of nights of the week and the number of chairs that could be put in an auditorium and such. Well, after a while, someone came up with the idea of a gramophone. And suddenly, people could listen to opera from not just the best singer in their region, but the best singer in the whole country. In fact, the best singer in the whole world. And so the one, two, three, four best singers captured all the opera money. And if you were 10th, 11th, 12th, 50th, 100th, 3,000th best opera singer in the world, you were going to do a lot less well because to the degree that people have money to spend on opera, they're going to spend, they're going to spend now a lot more on these gramophones and a lot less on going to see a mediocre opera singer um, at the regional theater. And so there's an example of a market, and there are lots of them, where the degree to which you expand the size and the reach of the market, the, the more the people at the top capture it all. We know about opera singers. We know about baseball players. We know about movie stars. But there are more of these markets than you think. Superstar journalists, for example, make a lot more than run-of-the-mill journalists. Um, superstar lawyers make a lot more. Superstar doctors make a lot more. Um, so that is one way in which income, in which globalization makes income um, more unequal. Um, and uh, Dan didn't deal with that. Now, all these problems that I just described to you are problems that I think would go in the category of it's useful to understand all that. And the policy response to them probably should be n not much. But to don't deny them. Because to the degree that proponents of trade want to be credible, if you deny what seems obvious to people on its face, deny what they see around them, deny all the anecdotes, then you lose credibility. And they don't believe even the things you say that are true. Well, I want to uh, call your attention to, I, I wish Dan had left out Chapter 5. The book is really good except for Chapter 5, America's Trade Deficit, Accounting Abstraction or Public Enemy Number 1. Um, I'm going to read to you from page 75 at the bottom. And this begins to get at a glaring hole in his logic. Of course, the foreign producer who provides us with the big screen TV may not want or need anything from the United States because they probably can't pay their workers or their suppliers in the U.S. dollars they earned selling in our market. They exchange them for local currency on the international foreign currency market with someone who does want to acquire something in the United States. There's two problems with this. The first I've already mentioned, that this foreign producer who provides us with the TV 
may not want or need anything from the United States. Well, that's true. Or maybe he can't buy anything from us because his government won't let him. Problem number one, trade is unequally open. But the real problem here is they exchange those, the local current, they exchange the dollars for the local currency on the international foreign currency market with someone who does acquire something in the United States. Well, in some of our largest trading partners, the China complex of East Asia, the Middle Eastern countries from which we buy too much oil, actually they cannot exchange their dollars on the international currency market. They have to sell them to the central bank, which gives them a fixed rate, exchange rate, which the bank itself has determined. And basically a rate which it wants to keep constant, wants to peg the currency against the dollar for mercantilist reasons. And in fact, the central bank does take that and invest, buy something in the United States, but the something isn't a something something. It's an asset. It's a financial asset. It's a treasury bond or a Fannie Mae bond. Maybe it's some real estate. But that Chinese central bank or the central bank of Dubai is not buying that because it wants to buy them per se, because it, it wants to consume them, because it thinks it's the greatest investment for its people. It's buying them for the simple reason that it wants to manipulate the currency market. So the idea that capital flows are just the same as trade flows and that foreigners want to buy our financial assets and we should think of this as really great rather than just as if they wanted to buy our Caterpillar tractors, it's not quite the same. And it turns out to be a big difference. On page 76, um, there is a section called Investment Flows Drive the Trade Account. Now, this, this is another favorite, favorite fantasy of, of people who have economics degrees, which is that the only thing that determines a trade deficit is that, in, at least in our case, is that we don't save enough. That we consume, that we invest a lot more than we save, and that that difference really is what drives it. And that we need to import capital because we invest more than we save, so we don't have enough capital to pay for all our investments, so we have to bring in capital. And because, as a matter of accounting, capital inflows have to be offset, or, or ca those capital inflows have to be offset with trade inflows so that the current account balances. Therefore, capital flows drive trade flows. So the reason we, the, the argument here is the reason that we consume more than we produce isn't because we're profligate. It's because we invest more than we save. The, Dan is making the same mistake in mirror image as Larry Michelle makes over at the EPI. Larry believes that, in fact, it's just the opposite, that because we produce less than we consume, and the reason we produce less than we consume is because of trade as a country, 
then the capital flows come in to make up for that, to balance that off. And that's just as wrong as making the other argument. In fact, we don't know which comes first, which causes the other, whether our trade deficit causes our need to import capital or whether our desire to import capital causes our trade deficit. It works both ways. It doesn't work both ways all the time the same way. It changes depending on business cycles. It changes depending on other people's business cycles. It changes depending on relative changes in productivity in countries and relative growth in countries. So it's very hard to say at any one time, and certainly over time, whether trade flows are the driver or capital flows are the driver. But I think we, if you just think about it for a minute, you know that it's both. And the reason I, I focus on this is because, let's go back to that central bank. To the degree that that central bank, in order to fix its currency, takes that surplus, trade surplus, and invests it in U.S. Treasury bonds, drives down interest rates in the United States, lowers return to um, savings, and increases the attractiveness of borrowing on the part of the government and consumers, it affects how much we save and how much we consume. If you make consumption for us so attractive debt-fueled consumption so cheap, and you make returns on savings so low, guess what? I'm going to save less and consume more. And I'm going to think I'm pretty much just as well off by doing that. So manipulation of currency does, in fact, affect both trade flows and capital flows. Um, there's another part of Dan's book that I think he overstates, he needlessly overstates his argument, and that is that, in fact, global imbalances are good, that it's a good thing that the United States runs the mother of all trade deficits, and it's a good thing that China runs the mother of all trade surpluses. I don't think anyone really believes that. For one thing, we know what happens when you do that. It causes asset bubbles. It causes, because credit is so cheap in the country that runs the trade deficit, cheap credit, artificial, which by the way is created artificially by the central banks of other countries, it artificially drives up the value of financial assets. And in the real world, although not the world of economic models, causes people to get into bidding wars, unproductive bidding wars for a limited number of capital assets that bids up their prices a lot higher than their economic value. Now, if you believe that everything in, ec in the market is rational, then you don't believe this. But if you believe everything in a, uh, in a in a market economy is rational, then maybe we don't need to have this conversation. But we do get asset bubbles, and we know this because we just went through one of those, and in fact, we're going through it again. So that bidding war 
doesn't make anybody really better off. It doesn't make the economy better off. It's actually you lose a lot of you sort of waste a lot of money in in bidding wars for stock prices and bond prices and real estate and commodities and artwork. You can really blow a lot of money that way. Ask the banks. Um, the second thing about that is he, Dan might say, well, that's true, you get booms and busts, but if you take a look at this over the long term, and he has a lot of charts in there, shows if you look at this over the long term, and you, you know, there's all these ups and downs, but if you take one of those lines that the computer can do to sort of smooth it out, you know, it's a nice smooth line, and, so, and it's going up, so what's wrong? Well, the other thing that's wrong, which a lot of economists sometimes forget, is that people don't take that view. People don't live that line. They live in the day-to-day. And if something goes way up and way down, and on average you come back to where you started or even a little bit higher than when you started, an economist would say, see, it's better. Great. People actually like stability. Real human beings, not rational actors of the, of the economic model, actually like stability. They prefer it. And they're willing, actually, to give a little something up in order to get it, because they, a lot of them don't like it. He also largely ignores or dismisses the effect of what happens if you have run large trade deficits, which is they do buy your financial assets, the foreigners do, and they buy your real assets. They buy your real estate, they buy your companies, as well as buying your treasury bonds. And that there is some control that you give up when you sell that stuff. Now, it's a big country and it's a big economy, and Nobody has bought the United States totally yet. Just because they buy Rockefeller Center doesn't mean they're buying America. But we're getting up there. We're getting to the point where foreigners own a serious amount of our real economy and perhaps a dangerous amount of our financial assets so that if they wanted to, they could manipulate them or hold us hostage or threaten in ways and connect issues that either are economic issues or non-economic issues that we might not like. So the idea that this has no cost seems to me is, um, um, is a little fanciful. So let me make my final point, which is that we have to think about trade in terms of the political economy, not just the economy. Dan writes correctly that protectionism helps the few at the expense of the many. This is absolutely correct. But it is also true that trade helps the many at the expense of the few. The costs are concentrated in a certain class and often geographically. And I don't think I have to tell you where those places are and what those classes are. If there is a trillion dollars in benefit to trade or globalization, as, the, as uh, the Peterson Institute has um, calculated. And if those costs are concentrated in a relatively small number of people, if the costs associated with that in a relatively small number of people and places, then we should be willing to compensate the losers for that trillion dollars. We should be willing to spend $100 billion to compensate the losers. And I think one the most disappointing part of Dan's list of things at the end of things he's willing to do, most of which I agree with, is uh, the one on page 177. 
for those of you who have the book, which is Consolidate All Unemployment Job Retraining Wage Insurance Programs to Apply Equally to All American Workers, which I agree with, because you can't really tell what's trade, caused by trade or technology or just the economy getting more efficient, not just those displaced by trade. But if you read that little section, there's no new money in there. And uh, there's not a very aggressive effort to compensate the losers. Now, you could argue that's fine economically. I can assure you it's not fine politically. The reason that your side loses, keeps losing this debate, is because you've done too little to recycle some of that $1 trillion to the small number of losers so that they're not unhappy and other people aren't scared of becoming them. Remember, it's not, this is politics, not economics. It's not rational. The chances of me becoming one of them is pretty little, but the, the fact is that I'm afraid of becoming one of them, and that's the political reality. So if you say there's no increase in that spending, we're not going to increase community college spending, we're not going to increase wage insurance, we're not going to make sure that everybody has unemployment insurance, not just 40% of workers. If you're going to push, as Cato always does, to, to privatize unemployment insurance rather than socializing it, which is what you should do, socializing these costs. If you don't want to raise a tariff, for example, just a slight tariff on everything that comes in to help pay for this, since it's one way to tax the winners to help the losers, well, then you don't wind up not doing anything. And if you wind up not doing anything, then you wind up getting the kind of opposition you get. So my when I talk to business groups, just as I talk to more ideologically driven groups like you that want more trade and want people to embrace it and want the, the public and the government to approve more trade treaties, you know, you should be willing to spend a little money, tax the winners, tax people in some way, socialize the problem, and take care of the losers. And if you did that, you'd get it. But the refusal to do so has brought us to what is now basically a political stalemate, where you won't get any less trade in terms of treaties and effects, but you won't get any more either. You know, that's okay, we're doing fine, but if you want more, you've got to do something. You've got to change something to change the stalemate, other than writing a very good book. Thank you very much, Steve, for your courageous comments here at, here at Cato. Um, Dan, I guess we're going to have to find somebody else to post to write the review. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm going to open it up to questions. But before I do that, I think Dan probably has a few things he'd like to say in response to some of Mr. Perlstein's comments. And I'll just be very, very brief because we're not here to engage in a debate. I'm very grateful for Steve for giving us time and coming over here and, and giving us what, what we wanted from him, his, his edgy and unpredictable and honest uh, co comments. Uh, well, of course, I think one big lesson from what Steve said, you know, he had a, obviously has a different view of some of the things in the book. The, the obvious lesson is you need to buy the book and decide for yourselves. Uh, who's, uh, who's, who's right. But let me just quickly touch on a couple of things that I think need to be addressed. I didn't ignore, uh, well, I didn't consciously ignore lots of stuff. There's a limit to what you can put in a book, and so you've got to leave certain things out. And I, and I wasn't the purpose of the book to engage in the nitty-gritty of every 
angle of every debate that goes on uh, uh, about trade. I didn't ignore the problem of trade barriers abroad. It's significant. The longest chapter of the book is at the end where I describe all the remaining trade barriers here in the United States. If you were to rank the countries of the world according to their openness to the global economy, we wouldn't even qualify for a medal. We're somewhere like 25th or 26th according to the economic freedom of the world report. And the other world has been, the rest of the world has been coming our way. Uh, China's tariffs on those products of most export interest to the United States, to China, have come down from 25 to 7 percent uh, just since they, they joined the WTO. We can't wait around to give up. Our, our trade barriers are doing us damage right now today. We can't wait around for the next round of the WTO to be completed to get those barriers down. Let's do ourselves a favor right now. The impact on, on blue-collar workers, uh, I probably could have had a paragraph in there saying the effect that trade has. This is a kind of arcane argument in the literature. How much is accounted for by trade? How much by technology? And I have a hunch, and some of the studies confirm this, that technology has done more to impact the wages of blue-collar and low-skilled Americans than trade has done. And again, what's the remedy? Do you raise trade barriers? Do you try to uh, prevent technology from moving forward? No, you find ways to help people. I do talk about uh, e education. <clears throat> the winner-take-all uh, issue is interesting. I've, I've read some of that literature. I guess the insight that I offer is the producer uh, not focusing exclusively on the producer. Even in Steve's story about the opera singer, it was all about the producers, right? The winner-take-all opera singer versus the opera singer that used to ride the circuit and now she's out of a job. Oh, no, the winners also the consumers. They get a better, on average, they get better singing at cheaper price. Right. They, they win from this winner take No, no it is, but it has it, j just the unintended effect is that the winners win big and the losers, it, it, it tends to contribute to in inequality. Again, I, right. on that one, I'm not sure you do anything. I'm just saying, just right. take note of it. The just fact my, when my you point globalize, being, trade, you do that. Trade like the gramophone is a consumer's best friend, and now some, somebody in a hollow in West Virginia can listen to the best opera singers uh, in the world. The trade deficit, I just say that was one of my favorite chapters. Uh, <clears throat> it's like, like my children, you know, which one's a favorite? But I, 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 I do have kind of a soft spot for that. And, and I will just say, Steve, I agree with you, it's a messy world. And Sometimes when you're trying to communicate ideas, you ha I, I tried never to compromise on truth, but sometimes you have to simplify things somewhat. And it is a messy world. Governments are out there manipulating currencies. I do think that example of the big screen TV and what happens to the dollars is, uh, is quite illuminating. But again, I'd say uh, make, make up your own minds. And finally, on compensating the losers. You know, we do spend quite a bit compensating the losers. It doesn't seem to have bought us one bit of goodwill with our friends over at the AFL-CIO and uh, Lori Wallach and, and others. In fact, the more we spend on trade adjustment assistance, uh, the more determined they seem to be uh, to resist uh, every trade agreement that comes down the pike. It wasn't the purpose of the book to say we need to spend X, billion, X billions more. I didn't say not spend that. You're right. We do have our, our view at Cato of how it could be more effectively spent. It's just my point that this isn't a unique trade problem. Technology 
is affecting people in the workplace far more than trade. Congress people tend to reach for the trade lever just because it's easier. We can do something about it. It ends up uh, doing some, uh, always doing uh, more harm than good. So I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on that, Steve, but I am very grateful for you for uh, reading the book, for coming here today, and we look forward to your questions. Okay. If members of the audience have questions, please raise your hand. Uh, I'll point to you, and somebody will come around with a microphone, and please identify yourself. The gentleman all the way in the back. Identify yourself first and get to the question as quickly as possible, please. Richard Ranger, American Petroleum Institute. Th thanks to you both. Um, I was going to ask uh, Mr. Perlstein to expand or to, to give an example of um, a winner-take-all market. Um, you, the parable of the opera singer was, was definitely entertaining, but, but an example or two of a winner-take-all market as you see one either existing or emerging, and then ask Mr. Griswold's response to that in terms of trade consequences? Well, they, 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 they're all over the place. They, they don't necessarily work to the disadvantage of the United States. In fact, we tend to be very big in the winner-take-all market. So let's take the market for higher education. Um, people from all over the world want to come and study at Harvard. One effect of that is that the salaries of the top professors at Harvard, particularly if you um, adjust for the number of actual hours of work they do having to do with students, <laughs> has gone way up. But the, it has had very little effect uh, or very little effect on the wages of... Um, the professor teaching the same thing at Slippery Rock. And so the gap between the superstars in higher education um, versus the just ordinary, perfectly fine professors has, has really widened. And one of the reasons that's the case, not the only reason, is that Harvard now draw, draw, um, draws from an international globalized market rather than a simply a national market. I'm not suggesting this is, this is bad, we should do anything about it, that it doesn't help the United States. It actually does help the United States. But within the United States, you get divergence. And divergence is something, again, that people don't like. Even if the median continues to go up, but the people at the top go up a lot more, people don't like that. The people that are in economic models don't care about that, but the people in real life who vote, they do care about that. And to some degree, globalization gets caught up in that. I would just say I don't deny that this winner-take-all phenomenon uh, is, is real. I think it tends to be – it's kind of neat, but I think it tends to be uh, exaggerated. And I think globalization uh, helps to offset that by bringing in more uh, producers competing – for uh, the consumer's dollar. We see it in entertainment. It isn't, if you want to uh, buy a movie or uh, uh, music, you can now buy from international producers. So in a given market, the tendency, because of globalization, is there'll be more producers vying uh, for your dollars rather than fewer. The market, the globalization is the market's antitrust policy, protecting us from abusive uh, domestic 
consumers, domestic producers, you notice education was one of those areas where prices have gone up faster than inflation because while there is some international competition, it tends to be insulated. Uh, and so I think uh, probably the winner-take-all phenomenon may be magnified there and the potential benefits from uh, international competition tend to be dampened just by the nature of the service. By the way, Dan does deal with antitrust in the uh, book very well, and I just am thrilled at this. Cato Scholar supports vigorous antitrust enforcement. <laughs> I just love that headline. Not, not exactly what I said. But. Right here. Lou? Again, you have to read for yourself. Okay, here, here comes the mic, Lou. My name is Louis Liebowitz. I'm with Hogan and Hartson here in Washington, and uh, I have read uh, Dan's book, and I enjoyed it very much. I have a, a question that really relates to both of your comments. Um, Steve said early in his talk that um, we don't trade to export, we trade to import. And I wanted to focus on a discussion in Dan's book about uh, the character of most of our imports uh, not being final goods, as important as that may be for consumer welfare, but intermediate goods, which are important for uh, U.S. manufacturing uh, itself. And I wonder if you could uh, explain to the folks how imports, uh, in your view, helps um, uh, manufacturers here in the United States. Yeah, why, don't, why don't I take a first shot at that? Yeah, over half of what we import are not final consumer goods that would end up in our homes. They're uh, capital machinery for businesses, looms and other things they import to help them make their products. They're intermediate inputs, uh, parts that go into the final production, uh, and they're raw materials, energy, uh, food, oil, uh, food sources. And I think that helps us uh, in, in understand the benefits of trade and, and the dangers of protectionism in, in a few couple of important ways at, at least. One, that was a way for me to say, all right, if you don't care about consumers and you just care about producers, they have an interest in imports as well. And this is why I think currency manipulation, uh, one, I don't think it happens, uh, one person's manipulation, you know, half the countries in the world have some sort of fixed or managed currency, mostly developing countries. The, the rich countries had fixed currencies for a number of years. It's not like that is prima facie evidence of that you're up to mischief. Uh, but two, I think the advantages of a depreciated currency are exaggerated. It's a two-edged sword. Uh, a, and this is where I think a consumer focus helps, but also producers. When we have a declining dollar, as we've had over the last year, Yes, it's good for certain exporters. They can export more, uh, but it's not good for everybody. Uh, one, it's not good for those U.S. producers who have to pay higher prices for their machines, uh, their intermediate inputs, their raw materials. You know, when the dollar goes down, it's pretty much a fixed thing. The barrel of oil goes up. So I know the dollar's going down when the price of gasoline around the corner from my house is, is going up, and that impacts uh, all, all Americans. So, again, uh, we need to think about imports as not just a consumer issue, but a producer issue. Uh, uh, one of the industries that is most cited in the index is the sugar industry. You know, when sugar prices are held artificially high, as they are by the U.S. sugar program, it doesn't just hurt Americans who want sugar-based products, but it is uh, very harmful to sugar-based, sugar-consuming manufacturers uh, here in the United States. Some of whom export. Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, I would point out that the, 
the trade bar in Washington is generally divided between those people who uh, represent um, exporters and those who represent importers. So, like when you have these things about steel, steel dumping, well, is it good or bad that China dumps steel in the United States, assuming that it does dump steel? Um, well, it's good for people who caterpillar and stuff who makes who make uh, stuff out of imported steel and then export it again. Um, but I would say that, as apropos of the the currency, caterpillar w on the trade-off of a lower dollar, which would increase the value of its imported steel, actually increases the value of all its steel because, to the degree these things operate in the same market, to, would it would it would it take the lower dollar, which would make the whole tractor more attractive abroad if the cost of that was slightly higher cost of, of certain inputs, the answer would be that they would take that deal. So th these are not, it's, 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 not, it's not perfectly symmetric. Um, in general, what would help the United States now is for the currency to drift down to levels that are more consistent with what would be an unmanipulated equilibrium. Let me take this opportunity to, to let you all know that on December 2nd, Wednesday, December 2nd, we're going to be having a forum in this very room uh, talking about trade and intermediate goods and transnational supply chains and cross-border investment uh, where these issues will be considered for an hour and a half. Uh, are there other questions? Uh, yeah, right there, front row, second section. Hi, Thatcher Starr from the State Department and the uh, National Defense University. I had a question for you, Mr. Perlstein, about your comments on the trade deficit. You had... Uh, you had mentioned this possible threat from um, foreign government ownership of U.S. assets, but then right before that you've been talking about the asset bubble. So aren't they kind of buying – it seems to be a paradox there. Aren't they kind of buying into an asset bubble? And then my question for both yeah. of you, I guess, is that um, w what's the tipping point on that? Uh, is there a tipping point or are we locked into some kind of mutually assured economic destruction with the, uh, the savings holding uh, East Asian uh, nations? Thanks. We are in locked in a mutually destructive, symbiotic, dysfunctional relationship. Um, uh, because, you know, this, these huge deficits that we're running, they allow us to appear to live better than we can because we get all this, we get all this cheap seller financing. So we, you know, we can have bigger houses and more stuff, and and not and appear like it's okay not to save because their cheap credit has driven up artificially the value of our financial assets. So we think our wealth is higher than it is. So we don't have to put money aside; we can spend it because we think our our four hundred one k is worth more than it really is. So th 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 that's bad. But at the same time, this this relationship is allowing them to put billions of underemployed people. Uh, to work in ways that have lifted billions of people out of poverty. So it's not like, you know, this is, it doesn't, it, we're not all stupid. I mean, it looks, it looks like this is good for everybody. The, the problem is it's not sustainable. Um, I suppose, you know, there is a limit to how much of, how much of, the, of our country they can buy. And in the, la in the last few years of the bubble, and even now, they're buying a lot every year. Um, now, it just so happens that our government is churning out a lot of new Treasury bills for them to buy, so we're being very accommodative at the moment. But, again, I think we all have a, a sense that there's a limit to that, and once we stop doing that, you know, they're going to start buying real assets, and 
you know, yeah, we do have it. We do have, and also now they've got all these dollar-denominated assets, and we, if our currency goes down, then the value of those assets goes down, and so. Uh, if they care about that, then they, uh, they have to decide whether they care more about the declining dollar effect on their on their uh, holdings versus the declining dollar's effect on their employment. I, I actually do spend several pages in the book talking about the long-term effects of the current account deficits. Are they sustainable? And, uh, yeah, I do, I do come to a different, uh, somewhat different conclusion uh, than, than Steve does. One, I would argue that I, I think the capital flows really do drive the trade deficit, and one evidence, piece of evidence I give is they're about 10 times bigger than, than the trade flows. So if you're concerned about global imbalances, you really do have to get look at the investment flows, and those are driven by levels of savings uh, and, and investment. I do offer some advice for what it's worth. I say Americans do need to save more. I offer some ideas on that. The Chinese need to consume more, uh, and I think that would go uh, a significant way towards uh, reducing some of these bilateral deficits. But the bottom line is it's not a trade policy issue. You can't get at this, even if you think this is a problem, you can't get at it through trade policy. If we raise our trade barriers, all we're going to do is that's going to mean fewer dollars flowing into global markets. The value of the dollar is going to go up. It's going to discourage exports, encourage imports, and you haven't changed the overall uh, le level. And let's put, let's put it in a little bit of perspective. Foreigners own about $20 trillion in U.S. assets. Now, if you add up all our assets in this country, corporate business, non-corporate business, households, nonprofits, it's still, despite the recession, about $100 trillion. So foreigners own roughly 20% of our assets. We own $17 trillion in assets abroad. And if you uh, value direct investment at current, uh, current value, market value, the difference comes down to about $1.5 trillion. It's not a huge difference in terms of our, our net asset position. And we actually earn more on our investments abroad than foreigners own here in the United States. So on a, just a kind of uh, current earnings we're actually still making a, a profit. So my bottom line is I think it's sustainable uh, for a, a, a significant period. You know, I, I don't think Steve takes any comfort in this, but we've cut the current account deficit in about half. I personally don't feel any better. Uh, our economy's not any, any better off. I'm just making the point that I don't think that is a central driver. It's more of a residual um, uh, symptom of, of deeper causes that funny as it sounds, have nothing to do with trade policy. I think we're going to have to end on that note. We're coming up at 1.30. Uh, can you guys help me uh, thank Steve Perlstein for coming to com comment on Dan's book? Please uh, join us for lunch upstairs in the Winter Garden, and uh, I think both will be around to, to entertain your questions if you have any. Thanks a lot.